a new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Taste Crime Podcast. I'm Janelle. I am Vicky. Guess what, Vicky? What's that, Janelle? We're on episode 100! (laughs) (laughs) This is where all the sound effects for horns and things go. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know what? This is very exciting. Mm -hmm. We've been putting out content for Almost four years. We've mm-hmm. now hit 100 episodes, which is like, a what? huge amount and something I never <laughs> honestly ever thought we would get to. It's crazy, <laughs> but very exciting. We're very excited. Yes, we're very, very excited. We're yes. so glad you guys are here with us. Yeah. I can't even. <laughs> we honestly, we wouldn't have been doing this this long if you guys didn't come to us with praise for the, I mean if people didn't like this why would we still fucking do it exactly you think <laughs> you know, I like getting so. up at 8 30 in the morning to record <laughs> oh my god yeah so you guys don't know this but we'll give you a little peek behind the curtain like mm-hmm. three months ago maybe four months ago Janelle and I changed the recording time we used to record at 10 a.m now we record at 8 30 a.m and mm-hmm. it's very early <laughs> Yeah, because we have, like, you know, crazy lives. <laughs> yes, yeah. Both of us are in school, mm-hmm. Not I, which the semester is over, thank goodness. Yeah, well, we're getting... We both there. work full-time. 
Yeah, we're getting close to the next semester. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. But mm-hmm. we kind of opted for an earlier recording time, which part of me is like, I kind of regret this. But if you've ever noticed, we sound sleepier in, <laughs> in the more recent episodes. I'm normally <laughs> having my first cup of coffee when I sit down to record <laughs> with Janelle. You know, so. it's funny. I'm always up this early. So <laughs> I guess it doesn't like I don't mind yeah. so much. Um, but it just gives me time to like decompress in between doing this and something of uh, the other 8,000 things that I have to do on a Sunday. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So we're glad that you guys are with us. Um, to that end, actually. So <laughs> this morning I told Janelle, I, I left, I went outside to go smoke a cigarette and I came back in and there was an envelope sitting on my mic stand, um, from. <laughs> It's addressed to the podcast with our Sweet. original OG name um, <laughs> under, underlined with an exclamation point that I won't say here, <laughs> so Tiff doesn't have to doesn't have to bleep forever. it. It'll be forever in everyone's hearts. <laughs> yes, um, but I decided to wait because I wanted to. I don't know what is in this, so I decided to Aww. wait until we were recording to open this. So let's see what this is. Um, okay, it's a card. Um, okay. It says, oh, this is cute. It says, congratulations on the outside. Behind every success is effort. Behind every effort is passion. Behind every passion is someone with the courage to try. Okay. (laughs) So, it says... Dear ladies of the BTC, on this, the occasion of your 100th episode, this number (laughs) one fan would like to take a moment to recognize this achievement. Who would have thought all those years ago that you would be still at it, not to mention through a pandemic without missing a beat? Love what you do. Keep at it. Looking forward to the next 100. Oh, I'm going to (laughs) cry. That's so sweet. (laughs) The card says, so happy that all the things you have worked so hard for and all the good things you deserve are coming true for you. You have a lot to be proud of. Number one fan, Eileen, a.k.a. Mom. Oh, mm. thank you, Vicky's mom. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, mom. Yeah, that's very, very sweet. <laughs> We're rendered speechless on this there's, audio there's format. $100 in the card. $100 for 100 episodes. That will go towards Aww, podcast so expenses. Yes, it will, 100%. <laughs> That was so sweet. I want to say thank you to my mom, who honestly, I really, for me, she feels like my number one fan. She's been very supportive since we started this whole thing. She listens to every episode. She's telling all of her friends. So (laughs) thanks, mom. That's how we do it. Word of mouth. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was, what a good way to start this episode out. And really this year, it's a new year too. So (laughs) yes. Oh my God. Yeah. Starting 2021 with positivity, y'all. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Get ready to have it ruined. (laughs) <laughs> by, by the horrible stories we have on today's episode. Oh my god. Ugh. Oh I don't know. God. Mine's kind of fun. So Mine is <laughs> mine is actually pretty fun. Yeah. So on that lovely heartwarming note, uh let's head over to the newsroom. 
So I have to I have to talk about for a second how I find my news uh, for this particular <laughs> segment. <laughs> so I am a redditor. I'm not going to uh, reveal my username because I'm not trying to get doxxed. Mm-hmm. but whoa, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> But a lot of the times I will look on things like are not the onion? which is stories that sound (laughs) too crazy to be true, but are actually true. And our news of the weird, which has a lot of very weird (laughs) crime stories. This in particular is only kind of news. It's something I happened to see on a sub sub Reddit called today. I learned where people just post kind of interesting (laughs) facts and I came across this. So it's a story of a man named Joseph Palmer who was a farmer in Notown, Massachusetts, who in the 1820s began wearing a long beard. Okay. At this time, it was something that was extremely unusual. Mm -hmm. And so he was constantly harassed for this choice by other men and even like ministers in the area was like, you're wearing the devil's beard. And he's like, I've never seen a beard on the devil, but I have seen a beard on Jesus. Point. (laughs) Solid point. Yeah, that was like in the thing. So um, in May 1930, Palmer was attacked by four men wielding scissors and razors in an attempt to shave his face. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> but he managed to fend off the attacker, the attackers with his beard intact. <laughs> Following the incident, Palmer was actually arrested and arraigned on the charge of unprovoked assault. So basically, he was arrested for defending himself. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, early 1900s logic. So for this, he was fined $10. He had $40 in court fees and a $700 bond, all of which he refused to pay. So they sent him to jail where he stayed for 15 months. Mm. During his imprisonment, Palmer insisted he was innocent and refused to pay the fines as that was akin to him admitting guilt. Eventually, county authorities realized that his jail term far exceeded his crimes And they tried to give him a way out by offering to waive the $700 in bond if he would just pay the fine and the court fees, which Palmer refused and continued to refuse until the judge who had originally fined him um, went to the jail and literally begged for him to leave, to just pay these fines (laughs) and leave. And so finally, he relented, he paid his fines, and he left. His life afterwards was largely uneventful, and Palmer died in 1873. By that point, beards had once again become fashionable, and his grave marker has a bearded portrait of Palmer on it with the inscription, persecuted for wearing the beard. (laughs) Oh my god. So just an 1800s story that I thought would... For my actually, for my story, it kind of links into the same time period. But I was just like, this is a little bit of fun and very weird. I mean, that's a very weird case of like old timey justice, right? Mm-hmm. Guy had a beard, got attacked for the beard, 
got put in prison <laughs> for the beard. Weird stuff. <sighs> yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. I mean, I never went to prison, but I sure as shit got in trouble for the things I wore and looked like in high school. So <laughs> yeah, I feel you. <laughs> so. We're going to move on to Netflix and Kill, which this week is an HBO and Kill. We are talking about the documentary called Crazy Not Insane. Have you had that. an opportunity yeah. to watch this? You've, mm-hmm. oh. Okay. So, it's so a little bit of background. The documentary is by Alex Gibney, who has very quickly become one of my favorite filmmakers. It looks at the research of Dr. Dorothy Lewis, who is a psychologist interested in how people become murderers rather than why they murder. Her conclusion really is that killers are bred and not born. Much of Mm -hmm. it is thanks to abuse or violence as children. She famously interviewed Ten Bundy during his appeal and then interviewed him again just a day before he was executed, uh, where he revealed this potential incestuous relationship with his sister slash mom i mean it's very weird (laughs) very very Mm -hmm. like and and even that is not necessary it's hard it's hard that's complicated but anyway she talks about it's sort of partially about her research and partially about her as a psychologist and i found it very interesting as this examination into psychology as a practice as it relates to the criminal justice system and kind of the the research they were doing into children with multiple personalities and other mental instabilities and comparing that to adult convicted killers who show very similar signs on brain scans and during interview processes and stuff. I don't know. I thought it was very, very interesting. Yeah. Thoughts? Yeah, I thought it was really interesting, too. But also, uh, as as she was speaking, you kind of got this feeling that she was like, I don't know, like really, really into it and almost to a point of obsession. Yeah. The way that she was talking about her research and you know, finding people to talk to, which I thought was kind of interesting because it's like, you know, at one point does a researcher cross the line? Maybe it's just because I was thinking about Mm -hmm. all the research I was doing. And when you do research and you conduct interviews, there is a methodology that you have to follow because there are biases that you have naturally as a researcher, but also biases that you develop in certain situations. So like I did a research study based off of somewhere that I worked previously. So right there, that's like, I might have a bias because I found that environment to be enjoyable, right? Mm -hmm. You know, she might have all of these conscious or unconscious biases in doing this research. And she was so ingrained in it that you might not be able to recognize those biases. So I found it very interesting about the way that she talked about her research and her interview process. But again, I was probably just in research mode, so... (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that she does talk about, because, of course, this diagnosis of multiple personality disorder, which now I realize is called something else Mm -hmm. that I can't remember, but it's still very controversial. Yeah. And not recognized by the psychiatric community at large. Mm -hmm. It's it's like, 
I don't know, it's kind of a taboo thing to talk about. Mm -hmm. And when she goes in and interviews these people, she has a, and I think has to kind of have, excuse me, a certain amount of empathy Mm -hmm. towards these people that she's interviewing because one like one of the things they talk about is there was information that she was able to get from Ted Bundy for instance that the police were never able to because they just use different interview tactics and to be quite honest with you they weren't really concerned on how he got to be a killer they were more concerned as to why he was doing the things that he was doing right which are two very different things right Mm-hmm. And she definitely takes a different approach from like a standard interview, police interrogation interview method to kind of draw these things out of people. One of the things that I felt was very poignant that she said during the documentary was she points out that the criminal justice system has a lot to learn from the psychiatric practice. Mm -hmm. And at the current moment, it's actually happening the other way around where psychiatrics are sort of bending to fit what the law says as far as competency Mm -hmm. and determinations of insanity. Right. Which is right. I mean, it's absolutely true. Mm -hmm. Also, if you think about it, they're paying psychiatrists and psychologists to right. do this. So right. money is a powerful thing and can sway mm-hmm. a person's opinion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is sad because you're supposed to be a doctor. <laughs> right, right. Supposed and you, s- you see this not just when it in regards to mental health or mental competency, but just sciences in general have tended to bend towards the court's will rather than the courts learning from science as it progresses and as the science changes. I know last episode, we talked a lot about bad science, things like faulty drug tests and bite mark evidence. Like a lot of those things have come out now to be unreliable and unscientific. And there's still a lot of pushback in the court system to recognize that. Mm -hmm. Same thing with some of these mental health issues and the, what is considered competent to stand trial, there really hasn't been any change since probably the 60s or 70s as far as language and what is considered competent in the court's eyes. So it's it's interesting. I think this documentary is interesting because it's not necessarily about one specific crime or series of crimes. It's more about the research done into the psychology of killers and how that was used or is being used to address these things in court. So I definitely encourage you guys to check it out. It's called Crazy Not Insane on HBO. I think it's like two hours long, but it's it's very informative and pretty riveting. I don't know. I thought it was... They have a lot of like interview tapes of her with these uh, murderers and stuff. That's like right up my alley. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so this is that part of the show where we say content may not be appropriate for all all users, all listeners. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Weird. Although this one, like you said, is kind of a little lighter. (laughs) It's more fun. Mm -hmm. So, Janelle, do you want to tell us what we're talking about today? All right. Yes. So I was 
kind of researching something and I was like, oh man, I really want to do this as an episode. So here we go. Uh, uh, today, uh, for our hundredth episode, we are picking hijackings, hijackings of any shape or variety. <laughs> yeah. When you said that, when you were like, it doesn't have to be a plane. I was like, Janelle's yeah. going for something way different. I bet. <laughs> No, mine's still a plane, um, oh. but I didn't, <laughs> uh, spoiler, um, I didn't want to pigeonhole you into only also having a plane story. I appreciate so, that. Um, because hijackings can happen on any vehicle, and God, I hope that you pick something like a golf cart for uh, hijacking. <laughs> no, I didn't. Damn, a dirt bike. No. <laughs> no. Oh my God. Um, That'd be interesting. Yeah. So this tale will take place in the 70s. Um, and as we know, I've mentioned this before, the 70s were just rife with hijackings. Oh, my God. It was God. the era of plane hijacking. And of course, this was back in the day when you could just stroll up into a counter at an airport, buy a ticket with cash, not show a shred of ID, and be on your merry way. You oh, yeah. You could have a thousand cocktails and smoke Eight packs of cigarettes in the plane, in the bathroom. Like, you know, who cares? It's so true. All over the tarmac, right? You know, those are the good old days. I always (laughs) think of the scenes in Mindhunter when they were flying from state to state. They're sitting there with their Mm -hmm. files all spread out, cigarette in hand. They just walk up to the staircase that's next to the plane. It's like, wow. Exactly. (laughs) What a different time. It's funny because when I flew to uh, the Dominican Republic for my brother's wedding, it was still like that. Like we were on the tarmac getting off on that, you know, like the weird staircases that they used to roll up to the planes. I was like, am I in another time? (laughs) It was it was wild. Yeah, it's so weird. So the 70s. We all know the problems with the 70s. (laughs) But this was also the time of D.B. Cooper. And by now, like, we are all super familiar with D.B. Cooper. It's the most famous unsolved crime mystery of our lifetime. Mm -hmm. But in 1971, if you're not familiar, uh, D.B. Cooper hijacked a plane in the Northwest, the Pacific Northwest, parachuted out of the plane with a load of cash and disappeared, seemingly. Now, six months later, this would actually happen again in Utah. Okay. So... On April 7th, 1972, a United Airlines flight from Denver to Los Angeles was taking off when it was hijacked. The hijacker, under the alias of James Johnson, demanded money. He had a hand grenade, a parachute, and a gun. Wow. Okay. Yeah, right? Fully loaded. (laughs) He handed the stewardess a strange note demanding the cash and to have the plane redirected to Mexico. The hijacker made off with $500,000 in cash and parachuted out of the back of the plane via aft stairs over Utah. Now, I put a little picture in here that is, it's basically a GIF, and it shows you what an aft staircase is. If you click on it, you can see that it's at the back of the plane, almost underneath the uh, engine. And it's what's commonly used, well, it was, I don't know if it's used anymore, uh, commonly used to put luggage in and out of. Okay, yeah. Oh, oh, God. Okay. Sorry. I yeah. was just watching so the, the gif, gif of the little guy. the guy walking down the stairs and just going, ah! <laughs> uh, the great. stairs, I'll just give you a picture of what I'm, what I'm witnessing. It's like a cartoon <laughs> plane. 
the stairs Mm -hmm. slowly open up from the bottom, and then there's, like, a little stick man that walks off and then falls into (laughs) space. (laughs) Yep, just like, oh, all the limbs flying everywhere. Oh, my God, that's Very interesting. Yes, I had to put it on there because it was the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. Um, So, the hijacker actually safely landed in a field and seemingly disappeared. Now, meanwhile, in Provo, Utah, a man asks for a ride from a stranger at a hamburger stand. He was wearing a jumpsuit and carrying a duffel bag. While the man was being driven to his home, one of the passengers noticed that there were red lights in the sky. The hitchhiker stated that they looked like they were flares. And when the passenger pressed him, he stated that he was a Vietnam vet and those flares were sent up when someone was looking for something or someone. The following morning, the news broke of the hijacking, and the family that dropped off the hitchhiker were a bit suspicious, so they called the tip line. Two days later, Richard Floyd McCoy Jr. was arrested for plane hijacking. Now, when the police came to McCoy's house, they found a jumpsuit and a duffel bag, as described by the people who picked him up at the hamburger stand. Inside the duffel bag was $499,970. Ooh. McCoy was charged with hijacking the plane, but he protested and claimed he was innocent. Okay. Now, McCoy was originally from North Carolina and moved to Utah to attend Brigham Young University. Uh. He quickly dropped out and joined the Army, in which he served two tours of duty in Vietnam. He was a pilot, a skilled parachutist, and a demolitions expert, even being awarded a Purple Heart. He was also an avid skydiver and worked for the Utah National Guard office and taught Sunday school on the side. Okay. Now, he doesn't really sound like a crazy plane hijacker to me, but he eventually decided after he kind of did all this work that he was going to go back to Brigham Young University to study criminal law after he came back from Vietnam. So the hijacking seems a little out of character. McCoy was convicted of the crime and was sentenced to 45 years in jail. He was sent to a penitentiary in Pennsylvania, but while there, he would be party to a jailbreak. Okay. Oh, God. Now, McCoy has access or had access to the dental office in the prison, and this is some real fucking outrageous stuff happening here, took some of the dental paste that was in the dentist's office and made a fake gun out of it. Like the whole thing was dental paste? Yes, it was all dental paste. Okay. (laughs) He, along with three other men, escaped prison on August 10th, 1974. They commandeered a garbage truck and crashed it through the prison's main gates. This was like out of a fucking movie. Wow. Three months later... The FBI caught up with McCoy and the last of the prisoners to be caught. He was living in Virginia Beach, Virginia, had a job, had a place to live, was just living his life. Now, upon arriving home one night, he came into his house and three FBI agents were waiting for him. He immediately opened fire on them, which the agents returned fire, and McCoy was killed in the gunfight. You're like, oh, okay. Story done. But it's not. From what I told you, does that story sound a little bit familiar to you, Vicky? Um, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> does it sound a little bit like D.B. Cooper? <laughs> it does, actually. Well, the major reason that I wanted to tell this story was the fact that there is a 
pretty big consensus that this man was, in fact, D.B. Cooper. Okay. And to be honest, he is the most convincing of all the potential suspects that have been kind of posited for this. And, you know, he was a hijacker, so. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, true. (laughs) So here are a few of the similarities between the McCoy and D.B. Cooper case. Both hijackers wrote almost identical notes, even using the same phrase, no funny business. Both men requested money in the same fashion of handling said note to a stewardess at the beginning of the flight. They requested the same amount of money, although D.B. Cooper didn't get that much. Both bailed out the aft doors of an almost identical plane. Both requested four parachutes in their hijacking demands. And both used pilot lingo and had knowledge of weather patterns and parachuting. Okay. That's a lot of coincidences, if that's the case. There is almost too many coincidences. Right, right. There's a book called D.B. Cooper, The Real McCoy. It's a great um, title. I was able to get uh, a digital PDF copy of and read some. They take this theory even further. The entire book is based upon the fact that they believe McCoy was D.B. Cooper. Okay. Now, there was a tie that was worn by D.B. Cooper during his hijacking that was found on the plane. He had actually taken it off before parachuting out of the plane, and the stewardess had found it and handed it over to the authorities. The tie was identified by McCoy's family as being one of his ties. Now, he's a Mormon. Going to a Mormon school, they're required to wear black clip-on ties. Right. So... Um, The brand and style of the tie was very similar to the brand and style of the tie that people wore at Brigham Young University. Of course, that was also really the style of the time. It was a black tie. It was very easily bought. But, you know, they were very, very positive that it was McCoy's tie. Yeah. There were even several FBI memos stating that McCoy was more than likely D.B. Cooper. This was during the 70s. Even the side-by-side pictures of McCoy and the sketch of D.B. Cooper are shockingly similar. Um, okay. I put, uh, well, yeah, I think there's a link up in the top of that. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> okay. Like, creepily similar. Yeah, that's, that's pretty close. That's pretty damn close. Uh, current FBI agents that have this ca- the D.B. Cooper case state that they have not been able to confirm connections between the hijackings. I rolled my eyes. You couldn't hear it, but I rolled my eyes there. <laughs> the other interesting thing was that the hijackings actually occurred during vacation times at Brigham Young University, where McCoy was attending. Okay. So the first hijacking took place during a holiday break at the school, and the second hijacking also took place during a holiday break that the school was having. Okay. So the timeline, he wouldn't have had to report to school, so it's pretty good. The theory in the book also outlines that McCoy was around Las Vegas shortly after the D.B. Cooper hijacking. It stated that McCoy parachuted out of the plane, drove to Las Vegas, and then headed back home to Utah. So they were kind of plotting where he was at the time and how plausible it would be for him to jump out of a plane in the Pacific Northwest and make it to Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. And they thought it was really like it was a good timing. Like if he had a car stashed somewhere or knew of a pinpoint close by where he could get a vehicle and jumped out there, then he could do it. Yeah. And if you think about how he how he did the hijacking from going to Denver to Los Angeles, 
He drove to Denver, got on the plane in Denver, knew exactly where he had to have them reroute to go to Mexico so that he could jump out over Utah. Okay. So he had a very good understanding of planes, um, the patterns, uh, the, the lingo that pilots have. Because he flew planes. He was a parachutist. He knew what to do. Yeah. He knew when the weather was good. And, you know, he was able to jump out of the plane pretty much right over top of where he fucking lived. Yeah. So. <laughs> wow. Which I think is also why he uh, got in trouble. Now, if he yeah. was D.B. Cooper, the way he did it the first time by, you know, driving really far away, getting on a plane, jumping out way out of the way, and then driving to another city and state, and then from there driving home. Mm-hmm. That's much better of a plan because you're not dropping, you know, into the backyard of your house. <laughs> right, Basically. right. Now, in 1981, the book D.B. Cooper, The Real McCoy was published, and it, in it was mentioned that McCoy's wife at the time was involved. Um, yes, he, in fact, did have a wife and I think a child as well. She immediately filed a lawsuit against the writer and publishers for defamation. Uh, some of the items in the book, which this might be hard for people to listen to, it's a little bit outrageous. They concluded that Karen McCoy threatened to throw her infant daughter under a passing truck she stated that McCoy dated an FBI agent. The book stated that Miss um, Karen McCoy dated an FBI agent while married to Richard McCoy. It also stated that she drove the getaway car used by Richard McCoy in the Provo hijacking. The book stated that she knew of the money and the location that McCoy would be at. And it stated that she conspired with the FBI to have her husband killed. Wow. Those are some pretty crazy allegations. Yeah, I couldn't find any mention anywhere of whether or not she knew that her husband was in Virginia Beach, Virginia, after he broke out of jail. From mm -hmm. what I understood and read, she really didn't have a lot of contact with him after he went to jail in Pennsylvania, with the exception okay. of maybe a couple of letters. You know, she was still talking to him a bit because they had a child together. Right. But it was, I don't think that they were like, you know, still husband and wife, so to speak. Yeah. Now... A settlement was eventually reached in 1994, uh, only after Karen McCoy, in court, admitted to partial knowledge of the events. She stated that she did know that Richard McCoy was going to do something. She didn't know what exactly, and that when he came back home with a duffel bag full of money, she knew that he had committed a crime. Yeah. She did, in fact, pick him up later after he had jumped out of the plane because the people didn't drop him off right at his house, like dropped him off a little bit outside of his neighborhood and she came and picked him up. So she did have an understanding of that he had gone and done something. Yeah. The other contingency of the settlement was that Karen McCoy wanted to make sure that a movie adaptation would not be allowed of the book and that the above mentioned accusations would be redacted. So... The part where she said she, th you know, threatened to throw her daughter under a truck and the parts where it said that she dated an FBI agent and conspired to have her husband killed. She wanted those things, you know, removed or a notation added saying that these were speculations. Yeah. Because the way that their phrase in the book makes it sound like it was definitive knowledge, but there is no evidence that any of that actually happened. And to be perfectly honest, there's a, not a lot of evidence of her really knowing what he did did at all she just knew that he's like i'm gonna go and i'm leaving to go he told her that he was gonna do a job okay. um and then he came back with four hundred and ninety nine thousand dollars <laughs> i'm just gonna go do <laughs> a know? thing what a job oh my um, god 
So, and there's a lot of this stuff happening in the 70s. Like, you know, even just thinking of like Bundy's girlfriend, you know, Gacy's wife, like all of these wives of these serial killers and criminals are just like, I had no clue what was going on, you know? Yeah. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of selective knowledge, so... You know, maybe right. she knew more, maybe she didn't, but she, def- I mean, I really don't think she threatened to throw her child under a car. No, and probably not. I don't not. think she was fucking around with an FBI agent. Probably not. I mean, it was the swinging 70s, who knows? But uh, from what I read, I really don't think so. So, oh yeah, that is the story of uh, Richard McCoy, a.k.a. D.B. Cooper, question mark. <laughs> I'm curious to know if they had, so did he... Yet, they picked him up after he escaped, right? And he got sent back to prison? No. So, um, they picked him up after he had committed the hijacking, like, literally days, sent him to prison, and he escaped from prison, and months later, they found him in Virginia. Okay. And they didn't send him- And they got into a shootout, and he died. So, he didn't go back to prison. Okay, okay. He died. (laughs) My thought was, why wouldn't they have, if they had- I know, like, somewhere in here you had said that the FBI thought it was D.B. Cooper was most likely McCoy. So (laughs) there is some transcripts that because so they didn't get a chance to really they wanted to interview him more, but he was only in jail for a couple of months before he broke out. Okay, because they were kind of collecting additional evidence and it goes into greater detail in the book, which the book is actually kind of hard to find D.B. Cooper, the real McCoy. Um, Mm -hmm. But even if you look, there's articles and stuff about the conspiracy theory, but the book kind of outlines a little bit more. But there were some FBI agents who really fully wholeheartedly believed he was D.B. Cooper and they were the ones trying to push the issue. The FBI in general was not. They didn't give a shit. Okay. If he was D.B. Cooper or not because he was in jail. So there were a couple agents who were trying to push the issue and they really thought that he was D.B. Cooper and they were setting up more interviews Because in the initial interview, when he was caught for the plane hijacking, they recognized similarities right away. And they asked him straight out if he was D.B. Cooper, and he denied it. Okay. Obviously. Yeah. But they did not believe him because criminal. Um, Right, right. (laughs) So they wanted to do some more investigation, and then he broke out of jail and was murdered. <laughs> gotcha. So it's, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't do anything else. There was, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff. They tried to do DNA testing on that tie that was found in the plane that D.B. Cooper left. They tried to do footprint tracking. They did find some of the money that D.B. Cooper had in the forest. You know, they were trying to lift fingerprints off of that stuff. Yeah. It was the 70s. You know, our right. criminal investigation techniques were almost non-existent still. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right? Which is outrageous to think of that. Yeah. But, you know, they had limited resources. A lot of times people were getting committed because of witnesses or because they left a note. You know, we talk a lot about people leaving journals and notes, which is a no-no if you're a criminal. Mm -hmm. Um, So they really had nothing to go on except for eyewitness accounts, which was they just saw this guy in glasses and he was wearing all black with a black tie. He looked like a door-to-door salesman or a Mormon. (laughs) Right, right. Okay. So, you know, I like... And composite sketches are, you know, not completely reliable. But back then, I feel like, I don't know, some of the artists that were doing composite sketches were doing a pretty damn good job, I think. If you look at some of the sketches uh, between, uh, you know, cases that we've covered. And I feel like the sketch for this is a pretty good 
general sketch. Yeah. And when you look at the picture of Richard McCoy and the sketch of D.B. Cooper, I mean, when I first saw D.B. Cooper, I thought he looked like a fucking alien, right? He had that weird Q-tip ass head, big yeah. glasses, <laughs> like he looked Huge alien Huge ears. Me. Right? Uh, yes. But really, he looked like Richard McCoy, and Richard McCoy looks like, I don't know. Like an alien. cowboy from Texas? <laughs> yeah. So, I don't know. There's like a... There's something, he has like, he looks like a cowboy to me. I don't know why. Yeah. But he looks like he wrestles up some cattle. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I think it's the sideburns. Yeah. There's a very like definitive shape. There's like a gauntness to his face. He's very sallow. His cheeks are like almost non-existent. And he has a very large forehead. So like, it really looks like the sketch of D.B. Cooper. And I've talked a lot about. I think this is the second case that I've, or maybe the third case that I've mentioned a link to D.B. Cooper, now that I'm thinking about it. (laughs) Yeah. You just Um, have theories abounding. It's just, this is the most convincing person. Um, I always bring them up in other cases because I feel like the D.B. Cooper case is probably the most outrageous sounding case I've ever heard. Yeah. It just is like, what? How does that make sense? How was that even possible? It's just so strange. And then when you mm-hmm. read about this, you're like, okay, this is how a person did it and got away with it and got caught. Like, they knew what they were doing. Yeah. They knew about planes and parachuting. And they knew exactly when to turn the plane around and where to turn it around to to get where they actually needed to go. So there's so much involved. And I feel like D.B. Cooper knew what he was doing. He knew where he needed to have the plane redirected, and he knew where he needed to drop out. Yeah. So, you know, it's a mystery. Maybe we'll never solve it. But I think that Richard McCoy is D.B. Cooper. Yeah. And scene. No. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Janelle, I have two questions for you before I okay. start telling my story. First of all, <laughs> okay. do you know what they call a boat hijacking? no but oh let me see what it could be um uh oh no uh something with maritime uh maritime caper (laughs) that would be good but no they call it (laughs) they call it piracy oh well that's 
a little on the nose. Yeah, right. <laughs> My second question for you. Have you ever uh-huh. heard of the Pirate of Lake Michigan? <laughs> I mean, I heard a couple drunk guys think they were the Pirate of Lake Michigan, but no. <laughs> okay. So I was... I decided to go with piracy instead of a standard mm-hmm. airplane because I was like, Janelle's not doing airplanes. I'm going to do something True. different, too. But then we did also, airplanes. And then- fun fact, before they started calling plane hijackings hijackings, they called it sky piracy. Yeah, sky pirates. That was pre, pre-1970s. pre It was sky piracy. After that, it was hijacking. So. That's amazing. <laughs> so <Yes. laughs> we're going to talk about water pirates. <laughs> I mean, the the most piratey of the pirates. (laughs) Yes. And specifically, we are going to talk about Roaring Dan Seavey, a.k.a. the Pirate of Lake Michigan. Oh, heavens. (laughs) I don't know if I'm ready. (laughs) This is like the best. This has everything that you would want in a story. It's like old timey with old timey, like tall tales of this. It's so good. It's so good. I can't wait. (sighs) I love it. I love it, and I don't even know what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Dan Seavey was originally from Portland, Maine, where he was born in 1865. His dad was a schooner captain, which naturally means that Seavey was drawn to this like life on the water, right? Yeah. Rather than being in school, uh, he instead worked on the water, eventually working on local boats by the age of 13. Totally normal. <laughs> yep. I mean, for the time, actually not terrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's not a factory, so that's good. <laughs> yeah, right. At age 18, CV entered the Navy, where he served for three years before being discharged. He then got a job working for the Bureau of Indian Affairs, where he tracked and attempted uh... to catch bootleggers and smugglers operating on reservation lands. Oh, uh, Okay. <laughs> I was all for this until you mentioned the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Yes. Um, I know, but it's part of his history. I'm not, I can't I leave know, it out. I know. It was, it was different times, but, yes. you know, still not quite that different. No. Um, in the late 1880s, CV left the Bureau and headed to Wisconsin. There, he tried to settle down with a girl named Mary Plumley, who was 14 at the time that they were married. (laughs) Which, Mm -hmm. CV, at this point, he would have been in his early 20s. Yeah. I mean, what 14-year-old doesn't want to be with a 20-year-old? I mean, if you can't get married by 14, you're a fucking spinster. It's true. (laughs) 14 is peak. The two quickly started a family, and they had two daughters by the 1890s. Gross. Double gross. I know. I know. It's hard for me. (laughs) Stevie took the family to settle in Milwaukee, putting him near the water that he loved so much growing up. There, he bought a small farm and a couple of saloons that that were right on the waterfront of Lake Michigan. And at the time... With the amount of shipping trade that was happening, having any sort of like saloon business in the port towns would have been decently lucrative because like the sailors come ashore, they Mm -hmm. all get drunk. It's all good. (laughs) But this also put him into contact with some like 
really interesting people. In this case, CV mm-hmm. made the acquaintance of Frederick Pabst, owner of the Pabst Brewing <laughs> Company. Wahoo! Yeah. Have you ever seen the building up there, the old one from this time period? No, the the Pabst Brewing Company it's, building. It's a pretty nice. Yeah. They, no. Uh, they had. They still use it. I don't know if it's the original original building, but it's one of one of them. But uh, yeah. There there was like a couple of shows there. Like it's a pretty interesting place. <laughs> Let me. Oh my god. Ooh, that's a creepy building. Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, I think it's beautiful. But. I mean, it's beautiful, but <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. oh, and this is a. This looks like it's. The old building and the new building. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, they do. This happened with like the the Harley building too. Like there was some period of time in up there in Wisconsin where they were like titans of industry. So they just kept like building buildings, and there's all of these like portions of the city where it's just like seven buildings or six buildings together, and it's yeah. all that you know that's all Pabst or that's all Harley. Um, and they would like tear them down and then rebuild a building. So it's, I don't know. The uh, architecture up there is very interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, and this honestly, like the um, the sketch of it, it looks very much like the royal palace in England. I know that sounds weird, oh, but yeah. like mm-hmm. it's that same kind of like style almost. Mm-hmm. If you were to add smokestacks to the uh, to the palace. <laughs> Right, correct. <laughs> <laughs> so he he meets Frederick Pabst, and the two kind of became acquaintances. Now, Pabst is actually the person who gave CV the idea of investing in a mining company. And shortly thereafter, CV picked up and left Wisconsin to head to Alaska and dive deep into the Klondike gold rush. Now, when I say he left, I mean he sold all of his Milwaukee properties, completely deserted his family, and just peaced out up to <laughs> up to Alaska. He's just like, bye, and just disappeared off the map. As you do. <laughs> As you do. Now, for those of you that are unfamiliar with mining history, the Klondike Gold Rush really started in 1897 when some 20 to 30,000 gold seekers flooded into Alaska and the Yukon in search of gold. The terrain was extremely harsh. The winters were incredibly unforgiving. Um, I mean, we just did an episode recently about the Alaska wilds that are like incredibly (laughs) dangerous, but... Imagine trying to navigate all of that in the 1800s. The amount of rape and murder that was happening at this time in that area almost merits its own episode, honestly. Yep. 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 (laughs) (laughs) So right at the height of the Klondike Gold Rush, CB disappears and heads west to stake his own claim. Unfortunately, after several years of trying to make his fortune, he was ultimately unsuccessful and suffered a huge loss when the company he had invested in went under. So... With nowhere else to go, CV heads back to Milwaukee, where he still decides to dodge his family responsibilities. Um, and instead, he took back to the water, where he could more easily disappear from the things that were burdening him. <laughs> Mary CV, his wife that he had left behind, went her own way and headed back towards northern Wisconsin, where she changed her name to Mary Silver. 
The next time anyone heard from Dan Seavey was in 1900 when he married a 22-year-old woman named Zilda Bissner. The marriage turned out just as horrible as his last when, after four years, Bissner filed for divorce, describing years of regular beatings and consistently having her life threatened. Which, which, great. CV, the ever-predictable sailor, was confronted with the divorce suit and once again disappeared onto Lake Michigan, leaving his life and soon-to-be ex-wife behind. A few years later, CV married a woman named Annie Bradley, which was a marriage that would last him many, many years. By this point, CV had begun setting up some roots in Michigan, where he opened up a few businesses. Now, According to an article from the Historical Society of Michigan by Dr. Richard J. Boyd, quote, CV operated various businesses in Michigan, some legitimate and some not. Over the years, he dabbled in marine transporting, trapping, logging, lumber milling, and even some prize fighting, which we will get to later. That's standard, standard of the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. On the dark side, he also practiced smuggling, poaching, bootlegging, and pimping. These activities yeah, made Dan a readily standard. recognizable character <laughs> in most lake ports, where even today, many a CV story can be recounted. Yikes. <laughs> yes. So here's just a couple of the stories that have been put out there. I'll tell you, some have some merit, some don't, but they're all very interesting. <laughs> mm-hmm. So back when CV worked for the Bureau of Indian Affairs, he had tracked one of his suspects to a local tavern. The smuggler claimed that nobody could beat him in hand-to-hand combat, which was a challenge that CV simply couldn't pass up. And so the two men punched and fought for several hours (laughs) when CV finally ended it by tipping a piano on top of the smuggler. (laughs) Oh my god, I can't even... uh... Which is just the image of somebody tipping a piano on top of anybody is hilarious. The smuggler was taken to a doctor but died the next day from his injuries. And again, according to the article by Dr. Boyd, upon leaving town the next day, CV telegraphed a succinct report, quote, outlaw expired while resisting arrest. (laughs) (laughs) So... Okay, so the next one, I had mentioned earlier that CV had a small career as a prizefighter with the most famous brawl occurring in Frankfurt in the winter of 1904. And Frankfurt, Illinois is just south of Joliet. Mm-hmm. This fight took place. This is like the most Midwestern shit I've ever heard. This fight <laughs> took place on the frozen ice of the harbor. 200 people showed up to witness the brawl that lasted two hours, which I don't understand why these fights take hours to, to do. <laughs> But CV busted his competitor and left with quite a bit of money. There's also stories of CV being quite a shot with a gun, too, including one where he had been protecting an illegal fish trap that he had set up. Okay. So what he did is he took the time to set up a tripwire with a bell in the shack that he was in. So if the bell went off, CV would fire a well-placed shot just near the poacher to scare them off. Hmm. So that's just a couple of the things. So let's talk about CV's business ventures and, yes, his piracy. Oh, boy. (laughs) CV was a bit of a classic old-timey scammer. 
Uh, <laughs> around this time, Chicago had become a huge horse racing scene. Mm-hmm. There were owners in the area that believed that by having their horses eat a specific type of marsh hay, the horse would have increased stamina. The marsh hay was only grown in Delta County near the Upper Peninsula, and CV, who was rumored to have started the superstition himself, greatly profited off of supplying these horsemen with the marsh hay that they really wanted for their horses. There's also descriptions of CV operating a floating bordello. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. The only kind of bordello. (laughs) A floating bordello. At the time, the local law enforcement's jurisdiction kind of ended at the water's edge. And if you look at a map of Lake Michigan for our non-U.S. listeners, so basically you've got the southwest little corner is part of Chicago and connected to Chicago. The little southeast corner is kind of part of Indiana. You've got it split in half going up the rest of the way, and the eastern part is part of Michigan, and the western part is actually part of Wisconsin. So you've got all these jurisdictions that technically own the water, but at the time, the police weren't really, like the local police were not really in charge of that section of stuff. So schooner masters, what they would do is they would round up a bunch of sex workers and booze and go from port to port. And this is something that CV did, too. Um, with the use of his 42-foot, two-masted schooner, the Wanderer, he'd go from port to port and just have sailors come on the boat. And they'd sail around with the sex workers. And there you have a floating bordello. <laughs> Simple as that. <laughs> yeah. It was definitely a way for these people who were trying to make a lot of illegal money to kind of skirt the law a little bit. Because mm-hmm. there's no law on the sea or the lake. No. <laughs> no. No local law, anyway. We'll, we'll see what law intervenes in this case. <laughs> <laughs> now, on to the reason Roaring Dan Seavey is famous today. But be warned, because it is a story with two sides. So I'm actually going to start with how it was reported in the newspapers at the time. Okay. That should be good. I love some old-timey talk. (laughs) Oh, my God. So on June 11th, 1908, CV and two of his henchmen approached Captain R.J. McCormick and some of his crew members in a local saloon. Captain McCormick owned and operated a schooner named Nellie Johnson. While at the saloon, the group of sailors had a few drinks and did some socializing, but eventually CV got the men so drunk that they were no longer upright. He then left with his henchmen and stole the Nellie Johnson, leaving for Chicago, where he would attempt to sell the ship's cargo of cedar posts. Hmm. However, CV had quite a few problems offloading the cargo onto Chicago's black market and instead decided to head up the eastern shoreline. Now, by this time, Captain McCormick and his crew had come to and alerted the government authorities to the boat jacking. Nine days after CV had stolen the schooner, federal cutter Tuscarora left in pursuit of the Nellie Johnson with a warrant charging piracy. 
Now, if none of those words made sense, here's why. <laughs> because <laughs> I was like, I don't know what the phrase federal cutter is. And some I was like, I don't know what this is. So I looked it up. Back in the day, the United States Department of Treasury had a division called the U.S. Revenue Cutter Service, which was meant to be an armed customs enforcement arm. It has since been merged with the United States Coast Guard. So this was kind of like the the armed customs enforcement on a boat going after <laughs> going after CB. <laughs> the Tuscarora began by stopping at every port along the eastern coast to ask and look for CV, but they soon realized this was just going to take way too long and instead they decided to call the lighthouses and life-saving stations along the coast to look for CV. A lifesaver in Frankfurt reported back that he had seen CV and he had been hiding the Nellie Johnson in a river nearby. So authorities Ooh. headed north, traveling most of the day and making the intentional decision to arrive under the cover of darkness to not alert CV. From the article by Dr. Boyd, quote, In mid-afternoon, the schooner wanderer was spotted sprinting out of the harbor under full sail headed across the lake. Tuscarora weighed anchor and gave chase at full speed, reportedly burning the paint off her smokestack and boilers. CV was said to have paid no attention to signals to drop his sails, prompting the gunboat to end the chase with a well-placed cannon shot along the schooner's waterline. Authorities then boarded the Wanderer and placed CV under arrest. On June 30th, CV was arraigned for mutiny and sedition, not for the piracy hmm. charge that was originally set. <laughs> However, CV was never indicted by a grand jury, and he was set free. Okay. So that's kind of the story that the newspapers put out there. It was like this really exciting chase. The boat was going so fast that it was peeling off the paint. They had to shoot him. And there was all these armed people that got on the boat and took CV down. And it was like this whole thing. Okay. A little more research into the story reveals that all is not quite as it seems in the newspapers. Of course. <laughs> Unfortunately, both the grand jury records and the hearing transcripts failed to be archived, and there's no copy of the original warrant. Hmm. You can get a better picture of what truly happened from the logbooks of the Tuscarora, which actually has no mention of the paint being burned off of the smokestacks. Hmm. The cannons had never been shot, and the arrest happened largely without incident. Like, there weren't all these armed men that got on the boats. Once when the Tuscarora approached the Wanderer, it sort of like pulled to the side and CV followed instructions as they were given. Many of the quote unquote facts about CV's arrest were a result of yellow journalism at the time, um, including the potentially fabricated charge of piracy. There was and is quite a bit of speculation as to how CV was able to escape the charges alleged at the arraignment. One theory is CV's lawyer was incredibly well connected within the Chicago legal community. And I'm not sure I have mm -hmm. to spell this out for you because Chicago's history of corruption within the criminal justice system <laughs> is vast. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and, de and definitely something we have talked about more than once on the show. <laughs> uh -huh, uh -huh. The other main theory is that CV was a seaman on the Nellie Johnson 
and that Captain McCormick actually owed him money. Now, some point to the mutiny charge as suggesting that he would have had some formal relationship with the schooner. But no one really knows kind of how we got around these charges. CV continued to work on the schooner for a number of years, eventually retiring in his 60s after suffering a burn injury in a suspicious sawmill fire. In his later years, he spent his time quietly living with his daughter. CV died in a nursing home in Peshtigo, Wisconsin in 1949 at the age of 84, ending the legend of Roaring Dan CV and the Pirate of Lake Michigan. Jeez Louise. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't know that, like, I got, I mean, it makes sense thinking about it now, but like back in the day, boat travel and trade was like huge because, you know, we didn't have air travel, cars weren't really a thing. It took a lot longer to get as stuff there by horse. Mm -hmm. So I guess it never occurred to me that we would have had a pirate on Lake Michigan. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, anything is possible. (laughs) Yeah, right. It's a thing that happened. But I just thought that was a fun old-timey story. I was like, this is right up Janelle's alley. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I do love an old-timey story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so before you try to steal somebody's vehicle, airplane, boat, <laughs> car, golf cart, what was the <laughs> uh, dirt bike? Um, before you do any of that, why don't you check out this podcast? I'm Raygun. And I'm Sarah. And And we're the Oddballs. Every week we talk about something odd, spooky, or otherwise weird. Aliens? Yep. Stalker fans? Yep. Cannibalistic tribes? Oh yeah. Listen to the Oddballs podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. New episodes every Friday. Stay Stay weird. Alright guys, that has been our... 100th episode. Yay! Oh my god. <laughs> oh my god. I'm still like baffled that we have got, have gotten this far that we've committed to something for so this is like my longest commitment. So count yourself lucky. <laughs> wow. You yeah. chose me, Vicky? Me? Yeah. I did. This is my longest relationship ever. <laughs> Oh my goodness. If you enjoyed this episode, there are 99 more over on <laughs> the badtastepodcast.com where you can also find links to our donate and merch pages if you want to get a t-shirt. If you want to chuck some money our way, you can click on the donate button, head to our Patreon. We got tons of extra content. We I we do not really make money off of this. Anything that's donated goes to no. the cost of the show. <laughs> Um, (laughs) no so just so you know we wouldn't be opposed to the support (laughs) (laughs) nicely put (laughs) thank you i mean i won't say no (laughs) what else you got anything else chanel any final thoughts Um, happy new year (laughs) thanks for coming along on this wild ride (laughs) Mm. yeah happy new year we will say on behalf of all of us here at the Bad Taste Crime Podcast, me and Janelle and Tiff and even AJ, who does our random tech things, <laughs> um, 
we'll say thank you um, for continuing to support us. And, you know, we hope that we can bring you guys content for a hundred more episodes, a thousand more episodes. I don't know. Who knows what the future is going to hold? A thousand is a lot, though. I'm, I'm, I said that and now I'm kind of regretting it. <laughs> That's a lot of episodes. <laughs> um, so we appreciate you. Please continue to to listen because we'll keep bringing you content as long as we can until one of us dies. Mm-hmm. Hopefully that's <laughs> that's later okay. rather than sooner. <laughs> <laughs> um, listen, I'm trying to be positive, okay? Well, that didn't sound positive to me. <laughs> bringing content until we die? That's pretty good. <laughs> I don't know. It's a, it's a long-term commitment. Mm-hmm. But... <laughs> On that note, our sound and editing is done by the lovely Tiff Fullman. Our music is done by Jason Zakshevsky, the Enigma. <laughs> this has been the Bad Taste Crime Podcast, 100th episode. We'll see you in two weeks. Goodbye. Bye. We did it. We did it. We did it. We did it. Uh, hold on. I feel a burp coming on. Uh oh. Excuse me. <laughs> I could hear that loud and clear. <laughs> yeah. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.